Let's pray together, commit this time to our Almighty God in heaven. Father, we, we love that we can call you Father. We rejoice that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us, that we could be reconciled to you. And I ask, we plead, that you give us a vision for who you are. Help us to see more than ourselves. Help us to see more than the mission. Help us to see you, glorious, reigning, supreme, sovereign, over all else. Bigger than any challenge. Stronger than any weakness. You are mighty to save. And we rejoice in you. And we ask that this time not be wasted. In your providence and purpose, you have ordained that this moment take place. And that these men and women, we, we gather together in accordance with your will. And as we open your scriptures... And as your Holy Spirit moves, would you work a mighty work in our hearts, in our minds? May we be changed because of moments like this. Changed to do radical things. Costly things. Bold things. For this city, for this glorious nation, for this world that you love. May your name be lifted up. We pray this for our good, we pray this for your glory, and we pray this in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said with one mighty voice, Amen. Amen. On the 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the castle church door in Wittenberg. It was his protest against corrupt priests, the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a German monk, gripped by God's grace, given a vision. A vision for a world in which men would be free from lies. To know the truth of the gospel that Jesus saves. His grace is sufficient. And we can be new in him. His vision was great. His legacy, profound. But Luther's call did not come without a cost. He endured exclusion, loneliness. He was banned from the empire, excommunicated from the church. 800 copies of his thesis were burned. He was rejected lived in seclusion for 11 months, suffered many illnesses, spent the last years of his life in pain. One vision, one remarkable life, marked by cost and trial. On the 25th of March, 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed, put an end to the slave trade in Britain. 27 years later, Another bill was passed, this time the abolition of slavery in the entire British Empire. Three days after that historic moment, a man by the name of William Wilberforce was laid to rest. Wilberforce was more than a politician or social advocate. He was a man transformed by Jesus. And in his 
redemption. He was granted a vision for the world, marked by freedom and equality for all. And yet, that vision was not without cost. For 20 years, Wilberforce faced rejection and political pressure. He lost friends, suffered criticism, false accusation, on more than one occasion his own life was threatened. One vision, one remarkable life, marked by cost and opposition. And in September 1939, a Dutch woman by the name of Corrie ten Boom faced the terror of Nazi occupation. Corrie worked as a watchmaker in her father's home, a young girl who who loved Jesus and lived for him. In the midst of war, Corrie recognised the need to protect Jewish people who were running for their life. And so she opened up their home. She had a vision for a world of refuge and peace for all. Because of her and her leadership and her family, 800 Jewish people were spared of their life. But this was not without sacrifice. In February 1944, Corrie was betrayed by a Dutch informant. The family was arrested, locked in a cell, dirty mattress, small blanket, a few pieces of bread. She watched her dad die in that prison. And after his death, they were moved to concentration camp after concentration camp where they witnessed brutality, tortured, and many horrific executions. There in the concentration camp, she watched her own loved sister die 12 days before her release. Three leaders, three remarkable leaders, gripped by the grace of God, gifted with a vision for a world that is much bigger and better than themselves. And yet not one escaped the fire of trial, resistance or hostility. Many of you, have been gifted with vision. Life-changing vision. God has given you passion. God has given you stirrings of the heart, passions, and a picture of a future reality where the glory and majesty of Jesus is made known. Right now in this room, you see churches being planted, A family being discipled. A business started. You see men and women coming to faith. You see a movement of grace that transforms the city in which you are in. It's a glorious thing. But let's not be mistaken. The journey ahead is not without cost. The path of leadership is not one of fame, 
fortune, prestige and power. To lead after Christ and for Christ is a call to suffer and die. In my years as a leader, I have encountered the reality. As a Christian, a husband, a father, a pastor. I've experienced, I've seen the unique relationship that exists between leadership and opposition. And as leaders, our call is not only to be aware of that reality, but to lead in and through that reality. So, how do we do it? How do we lead our people through the valley? I invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is not chiefly a book about leadership. It points to God's covenant and passion to pursue a people for himself. Yet within his extraordinary will, we meet and learn of a very ordinary man who loved God and loved his people. Nehemiah lived 400 years before Christ. Uh, He was a cupbearer. To the king of Persia. And the role of the cupbearer was to drink the king's wine, which just sounds awesome to me. <laughs> what kind of job where you just got to taste wine? But it turns out the king had many enemies who liked to poison the cup. It's in Persia that reports come to Nehemiah that Jerusalem, God's city, is in ruins. The gates are burned, the wall has been brought down, and the people walk in trouble and shame. This brings Nehemiah to his knees, crying out to God with tears in his eyes. And it's there on his knees that a a vision is birthed. A bold and audacious dream to rebuild the city for the good of God's people and the glory of his name. In chapter 2, Nehemiah approaches the king Favour is shown, doors are open, permission is given. The king sends with him his finest men. Arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah then inspects the walls and he gathers God's people together around a vision. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision and the people respond let us arise and build the people unite work begins the walls start to go up it's in that moment that morale is high the team is together and it feels like nothing can go wrong many of you are in that place everything is going to plan you have momentum but then comes chapter four Chapter 4 is the chapter few leaders want, but most will see. To unpack our text, we're going to look at three things that I'd love you to jot down. The nature of opposition, the impact of opposition, our response to opposition. First, 
The nature of opposition. Look with me to the text. Verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was, what's that word? Angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up, he will break down their stone wall. Uh, this isn't the first time that we meet um, Sambalat and Tobiah, but it's here that they emerge with the most serious threat to Nehemiah's work. As the text reveals, Sambalat isn't just displeased with what's going on, it says he's greatly enraged. Think Marilyn Manson at a One Direction concert. (laughs) Charlie Sheen at a dry wedding. Angry. (laughs) What has provoked this kind of rage? In part, it's about envy. Sanblat was an official in the Persian army, which means that, like Nehemiah, he he worked for the ruling king. And I get the impression that he's the kind of guy who took great pride in his role. He enjoyed his job. He worked hard to gain the approval of the king and make his way up the ranks. Could it be, friends, that the support the king showed to Nehemiah was the very thing that rubbed against Sambalat? Now, many leaders suffer criticism inspired not by wisdom, but envy. Jealous boys... Jealous girls who don't like seeing other people move ahead. Now this is especially relevant for us here in Australia. We value mateship. We prefer a flat model to leadership. Uh, This is why we will drink a beer with anyone. This is why we do sit in the front seat of a taxi this is why we love to see a politician kicking a footy with a local factory worker. Right? It's what makes Australians down to earth. We're very relatable. But there's a flip side to this, isn't there? We're suspicious. We're nervous with leadership. We don't like people going ahead. We prefer the underdog. We chop down the tall poppy. Hear this, some of you will do great things for the Lord. You'll innovate, lead companies, plant churches. You'll be opposed. Not because you did anything wrong, but because you were getting it right. And yet there's more to this story than envy, isn't there? Did you pick up the tone of uh, anti-Semitism? Sambalat is not only envious, he has a personal hatred for the people of God. He was from Samaria, and at this stage in history, there was a fierce rivalry, a hatred for God's people, a hatred for the God they worshipped. And if you cast your eyes quickly with me over the first verses, you'll see Sambalat goes after the Jews in a war of words and propaganda. He mocks their ability to succeed. Israel is small in number. The task is huge. And for 141 years, all they have known is brokenness. It's a lot of truth to Sambalat's spin. 
which is often how the devil works. Just enough truth to make you believe and enough lies to cause you to retreat. Now, significantly, this is not a new thing for God's people. Uh, In Genesis 1, we meet the God who creates. But in Genesis 3, we see the serpent, the enemy, who likes to what? Destroy. We see this in the garden with Adam and the attack on truth. Joseph and the attack on leadership. Moses and the attack on worship. Samson, Delilah and the attack on purity. Job and the attack on faith. David and Bathsheba and the attack on marriage. And Jesus Christ himself and the attack on true life. William Ganahl says, where God is on one side, you may be sure to find the devil on the other. A few months ago, I came home from work. I think it was summertime. And after I put the kids to bed, thought I'd catch up on some emails. Went to look for my computer. I couldn't find my laptop. And I was sure that I'd left it by the door. As soon as I walk in, I place it down. I look at it. It's not there. I search the house. I can't find it. Going up to the kids, they're still in bed. Have you seen my laptop? Do you know where it is? Not, nothing, just blank faces. Talk to my wife and I said, have you seen my... Can't find it. This is ridiculous. At this stage, it occurs to me, you know what I've done? I've probably left it on the train on the way home. Call up the train station. Nothing. Then it goes up to the cops station. Call the cops. Have you, have you guys seen any reports of a laptop? No, it's probably on eBay by now. I'm a little addicted to my uh, Mac, so this is really kind of, you know, pressing me. Gets close to bed, I get ready for work the next day, go get my pants, which, just, for this, just so you know, they were in the middle of the living room when I got in. It was a hot day, I took the pants straight off. <laughs> there you go. Head downstairs to get my pants. They're not there. Now I say to Vanessa, I'm pretty sure I didn't take my pants off in the train. (laughs) So I'm going nuts. And I go CSI moment. I'm like, well, here's the clue. If I can find the pants, I can find the laptop. 45 minutes, search in the house, everything, nothing. Next morning, I wake up just angry, confused, chaotic, and I hear my seven-year-old beautiful little girl, Summer, yell out, Dad! Why is your laptop and pants in my toy box under my toys? (laughs) And I go over to it and I have this kind of rejoicing moment. And and then I look over and I see my five-year-old son, Zach, with a grin. (laughs) Not just any grin. This is El Pacino, devil's advocate kind of (laughs) grin. (laughs) Now... I would hate to make the connection between my five-year-old son and the devil, (laughs) but I will. (laughs) I want to share the simple yet often overlooked point that often behind the challenges of our life, often behind the opposition we encounter, isn't a set of unlucky breaks or bad coincidences, but an evil foe wielding his power to throw us into confusion and despair. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Nehemiah has an opponent in Sambalat, but the real enemy is who? Satan. 
using the sin of Sambalat, the pride of Tobiah, to bring down the work of God. You know the devil isn't an equal and opposite enemy threat to God, but make no mistake, he is a very real and active enemy. The Apostle Peter says the devil prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Is God at work in your life? Has he gripped you with vision? Praise God. But be on guard. Just because God's hand is upon you doesn't mean that Satan's arrows are off you. Now, in saying that, let me add an important footnote. Not every challenge you face will be a result of spiritual oppression. For some guys, it doesn't matter what has happened. A church member is unhappy, staff member is leaving, photocopier is busted, it's all the work of the devil. (laughs) I don't buy that. Sometimes the reason people are unhappy is because we've made a poor decision. We failed to do what we were called to do. We did the things that we shouldn't have done. At best, it's a mistake. At worst, it's sin. And you and I, as leaders, need to take responsibility for that. But equally, what the story of Nehemiah shows is that even when you are faithful to God and lead with integrity and courage, there will be a very real challenge. A challenge against the mission you're on and the God you serve. This leads to our second insight, namely the impact of opposition. Check this out, verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall and our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now, as a leader, it's important to realize that in the midst of opposition, it's not only you who will suffer, but the team as well. In the case of Nehemiah, the impact is threefold. First, the attack brings down the people's strength. Those who once carried the weight of responsibility are now collapsing. I remember riding uh, with our team of uh, pastors from the city here to Sorrento. Those of you who are uh, from out of town, that's about a 100k journey. Not a long distance if you're an athlete, but like I said, we're pastors. But we did good for the first half, right? We're, We're cheering, we're celebrating, we're doing selfies, we're having a great time, and then we hit Frankston. The Frankston Hill. And there's this fierce kind of wind coming against us. And and we know where we want to get to. Like we've got the vision of where we need to be, that future reality. But it doesn't matter how much you want it. When you face that kind of resistance, it, it robs you of the strength that you need to continue. Mission is hard work. And if you add... Resistance to this, the daily challenge, the heavy lifting, you will know that there will be times of great fatigue. Right now, 1,700 ministers are leaving the ministry every month. For some, it's moral failing, financial pressure, but one of the main reasons is fatigue. 
90% of pastors work up to 75 hours a week. One in two feel unable to meet the demands of the job. Statistics like that used to surprise me. They used to surprise me. Not anymore. In planting City on a Hill, I've come to see that at every turn, there's always a new hill to climb. These are not only time-consuming, but can rob you of the energy and strength and motivation. I've felt fatigued. I feel weak. I see it in my team. Energy running out. Some of you are in that place right now. You've got your hand on the towel and you're just ready to throw it in. But that's not the only impact of opposition. Look with me to verse 10. The people say there's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. What happens in the midst of opposition? We lose vision. The task becomes too big. We find that we're just too small. Remember the first months uh, of our church plant, uh, I joined a team of about nine or so people. Uh, They were uh, older than me. Uh, They were experienced people. I'd never led a church. I'd never planted a church. Somehow I landed a job leading this church. Whether it was just complete ignorance or desperation that no one else would put up their hand, I was called to lead. And yet God had given this very small team a big vision. A vision to bless our city, a vision to plant churches, serve our city, care for the poor, and see Jesus lifted up. And yet it was not long into the mission that doubt set in. I remember a guy sitting me down, telling me not to put all the eggs in the church planting basket. His advice was, it's likely to fail. He wasn't an enemy, he was a friend. Had another guy say to me, It sounds good, but to me, it's just all pie in the sky. What is a pie in the sky? It sounds awesome. (laughs) I would love a pie in the sky. But it's a little unrealistic, right? And that's the point. Now, those kind of statements and off-the-cuff comments that you receive, you, you can brush them aside until you hit your resistance and opposition, and it's amazing how much they... They appear. It's amazing how those words of doubt, those seeds of doubt creep in. I get lost all the time in my own inadequacy. Continue to be reminded of my own weakness and sin. Often thinking, who am I to be able to lead God's people? third impact of Nehemiah's opposition is retreat. You see that verse 11? And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Right? The opposition Nehemiah faces has escalated to such a point that the threat of death is causing men and their families to throw their hands in the air and plead for a way out. They don't want to die. They want to go home. And right now, there are places in the world living under the same kind of pressure. And newspapers are filled with stories that remind us just how costly our faith is. And while the threat of death may be removed from our experience in Australia, the warning signs are there. 
attacks on the right to life, attacks on the marriage act, attacks on Christian education in school, small but subtle steps that show our culture is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And instead of the church coming together and meeting these challenges, so many of us are just sitting on the sidelines, doing, saying nothing. Nehemiah is being told from every direction to give up. The strength of his team is failing. They're losing sight of the vision. They're about to tap out and go home. What does a leader do in that hour? Where will you look to when your back is against the wall? This leads to the third and final section, namely our response to opposition. Not just to be aware of the reality of opposition, we are called to lead through opposition. What does that look like? Consider the example of Nehemiah. First, he prays. He prays in verse 4 for God's hand to come against these enemies, and again in verse 9 that God would strengthen their guard in defense. Right? Nehemiah is a story of a man who builds, but much of the heavy lifting is accomplished through prayer. Prayer drives the vision. Prayer carries the vision and prayer protects the vision. And we could spend a lot of time exegeting his prayer and counting up all the times he prays, but my question is, are you praying? It's easy to talk about prayer. There's a huge difference between the person who talks about prayer and the person who prays. A few months back, my daughter had the grand idea to set up a lemonade stand uh, just a few streets away from home. She's quite the entrepreneur. <laughs> Colourful sign, few t- toys on the table, uh, lemonade, setting it up, hoping to make her first million. So I go along with her, sitting out together. I don't know what it was about this day, the stock market crashed or something. <laughs> Nobody was buying. Hardly any people even around. I'm just sitting there, five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. I can just see my daughter. Thirty minutes, nothing. And my heart's getting all churned up. (laughs) And she comes up to me with a plan. Daddy, why don't we pray to God about this? And she said those words, my heart sank. (laughs) Because immediately I'm thinking, oh no, there is no way God is going to meet this kind of moment, this need in any kind of way. And I can just see us praying, that falling on deaf ears, and then watching my daughter cry and lose her faith in that moment. (laughs) Then I'm just rolling out of decades of rebellion, leaving the church, getting a tattoo, (laughs) dating some dude in a metal band and getting a Harley. All because of this stupid lemonade stand. (laughs) So I sucked it up and said, all right, let's pray. I reckon I prayed harder than I ever prayed before. (laughs) True story. We pray, we open our eyes, and immediately this woman out of left field comes. She crosses the road, comes straight to the lemonade stand, pulls out a $5 note, and buys a cup of lemonade. 
someone says to me, she came from the sky. <laughs> Close enough, right? Close enough. Why do I tell that story? Here's what I'm learning. The reason you pray in the everyday and in the small matters is so that when the enemy comes, you know exactly what you need to do. You're ready for the big things because you're practicing, you're discipling yourself in the small and everyday things. Second, Nehemiah responds to opposition by organizing and equipping his team. Organize your team and equip your team in the midst of opposition. Verse 13, in the lower parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. Now, when mission comes under fire, there's a propensity amongst leaders to retreat into themselves or go into battle by themselves. I'm prone to do the latter. I see the challenge and think, well, I'm going to be the hero of the day. I don't want to burden anyone else. I'll just kind of charge and take the hill myself. But notice Nehemiah. In the midst of crisis, he doesn't charge the hill alone. He doesn't retreat into himself. He looks to his team. He looks to the men and women that God has raised up around him to position them and get them ready. He organizes. He has a plan. He knows his team. He trusts his team. He positions his team. And notice what he does with his team. He equips them. He equips them for battle. Now, the take-home point here is not go and get an M16 for your core team. Right? Nehemiah, yes. Machine gun preacher, maybe not us. Right? We don't carry guns. Except for Matt Chandler. That's all I know, right? (laughs) Texas. (laughs) But it's not to say that you shouldn't be armed for battle. It's not to say that you shouldn't be equipping your team for battle because they will come under fire and you can't be there for every situation. You need to equip them for battle. And what has God equipped you with? How does he equip us for the battle to defend our family, to defend our marriage, to defend our church, to defend our organizations, to defend our city? What has he equipped us with? His word, which in the New Testament is called what? The sword. He's given you a sword. Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus, wilderness testing, the devil comes up against him. What does he do? He fights him with the Scriptures. The Word of God is purposely built for slaying the serpent. And note this. It's not only vital for us to have a good handle on the word, we need to be training and equipping our team. Just as Nehemiah put the sword in the hands of his team, so you need to put the word of God in the hearts and minds of your people. Too many Christians today are not taking a hold of the sword of the spirit. They're walking around with a bread knife. A flimsy appreciation for the word. Bread knife is, is great for spreading jam. Hopeless when it comes to standing against the devil. Now, our team members do have a responsibility to disciple and to be developed in the word of God. But the chief burden for that task is the leader. It's your responsibility to equip them. 
prepare them with the powerful, life-changing, word-impacting scriptures. Number three, in response to opposition, Nehemiah leads sacrificially. He leads sacrificially. Some years ago, uh, Vanessa and I were down at Port Melbourne Beach, and uh, we're just having lunch with our family, and I see out of the corner of my eye uh, these two guys, one of which grabs a, uh, a walking crutch, and he throws it into the water. Like, this caught my attention. Why is he throwing a crutch into the water? Turns out there's an elderly woman, she must have been over 80, she'd gone for a swim, and she'd struggle to come back. And her head was kind of bopping in and out of the water. And this guy's solution to that situation was to pick up her walking stick and throw at her while she was swimming. Creative, yes. Helpful, no. So we go and we meet this woman and we bring her in. And she is just distraught. You know, she gasping for air. We get up to the sand and I walk past these two guys... For the sake of the story, we'll call him Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and Dumber says to me, I would have gone in, but I didn't want to get my pants wet. <laughs> no, I didn't smack him. I wanted to. <laughs> Thank you. I would have gone in, but I didn't want to get my pants wet. He ain't alone. Many of us love the idea of leading, influence. Providing it doesn't inconvenience them. It's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I love this guy. Man of sacrifice. Check it out, verse 23. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah is a man who put his body on the line. Was he the leader of Israel? Absolutely. Could he have set himself up on a nice throne, away from all the danger? A hundred percent. But Nehemiah never saw himself as the king. He was the king's cupbearer. The king's cupbearer. He knew what it meant to position himself in danger. To be a man who marked his life by sacrifice and service. Whether it was for a pagan king... Or the men and women of God, he was on the front lines ready to lay his life down. That's leadership. Evident in Nehemiah, fulfilled in Jesus. The king of kings stepped off the throne of heaven to serve as a humble man on earth. Jesus didn't glory in his own wealth and influence. He got down and he served. When he was teaching his disciples about leadership, he washed their feet. And when we needed him most, in the depth of our sin and depravity, when we needed him most, he said, I will be their saviour. I will sacrifice myself for them. And you remember that gripping scene in the garden? That moment where Jesus is weighing up the cup. The cup of God's wrath and judgment. The full weight of condemnation that we deserved. 
Jesus is weighing it up and he says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the true cupbearer. The king who sacrificed himself that his people might go free. And we're recipients of his finished work. We enjoy it. We declare it. And you are to show it. Apostle Paul says we are to pour ourselves as a living sacrifice which is holy and pleasing to God. Does your life reflect the sacrificial work of Christ? Are you pouring yourself out so that people may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven? And number four, in response to opposition, Nehemiah reminds them of what is at stake. Nehemiah knows that at any moment the trumpet will sound and the horizon will be filled with men ready to charge them for war. And they will be fierce in their opposition. How does Nehemiah inspire his men to stand their ground and to fight it out? Hear his words of vision 15. He says, fight and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Right? He's, he's helping them recognize that there's something bigger than themselves at stake. And that is the only way you will continue to run the race and fight the fight. If you know that your leadership, the mission you want, is bigger than you. It's about your husband, your wife, this city, our children, our children's children. There's a lot at stake. Consider the city you're in right now. Melbourne's a beautiful city, ranked the most livable city four years running now. We didn't vote on that, others voted into that. (laughs) It's a beautiful city, and I hope you're enjoying it, I really do. But make no mistake, our city is hemorrhaging in spiritual need. 80% of the people that you'll pass by as you walk around... No connection at all to church. Of those aged 24 to 35, only about 2% go to church. That suggests to me that 97, 98% of men and women in that age bracket right now are not in a saving relationship with Jesus and on a trajectory to hell. There's a lot at stake. In the midst of the million dollar homes that you'll go past. There are families suffering the pain of broken relationship and divorce. Domestic violence against women is growing at four times the rate of population. One in seven women suffer abuse. We're intoxicated with sex in this city. Twice as many brothels as McDonald's restaurants. We're addicted to pornography, we're enslaved to gambling, consumed by our jobs, we are lost, alone and in great need. There is only one thing that can turn that around. It's not a better economy. It's not more jobs, greater education or better health care. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do you know people in your life right now who need hope? Do you know people in your life who need to be redeemed? Do you know people in your life who are trying to live for themselves, enslaved by the world? I do. There is no other name that they can be saved unto under the name of Jesus. Jesus is the hope for our salvation. There is a lot at stake in this mission. Only one life that soon will pass. Only what's done for Jesus will last. You can make a stand today. You can be part of an extraordinary work. And no matter how small we might feel or how big the challenge, you can meet this with great confidence. You see those words that I skipped over? See where Nehemiah gets his inspiration for what is to come? Verse 14, Nehemiah says this. Precious words. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. In the midst of opposition, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. It is going to be tempting for you as a leader in the midst of opposition to appeal to your own self-confidence or even the giftedness of your team. You can do it. You're a great team. You've got all the gifts. You've got all the experience. We've got all the plans. Very tempting to give a self-help seminar in those moments. If you do that, you will mock the glory and power and majesty of our God. A leader doesn't hold up a mirror but sets their eyes on the infinite glory and beauty of God. Remember him, says Nehemiah. He is great and awesome. The one we worship is not limited. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who formed you. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God who led his people out of slavery, parted the Red Sea, defeated Pharaoh, conquered the Babylonians. Sovereign over demons. More powerful than the devil conquered death. He is the great I Am. He's not small. He's not restricted. He's supreme. Stronger than our failings, bigger than our obstacles, and absolutely more powerful than any enemy you will face. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, says the psalmist, for you are with me. See where the confidence is? Because you are with me. And your staff, they comfort me. And then Jesus' final charge as we finish this up. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded, and I will be with you till the end of the age. Jesus is supreme and sovereign. And in his mercy... He has promised to build his church. He is getting the job done. He will get the job done. There is victory. We know how the story goes. And in his grace and mercy, he calls each and every one of us to play our part in that mission. To be part of the story. To join him under his leadership, under his lordship, under his authority. Invited in 
to be part of his bigger plan. And yet Jesus knows that there will be opposition along the way. When he is sending them out, he knows for sure there is opposition. He is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He knows opposition. And we are the body of Christ. We will face opposition. Where will you go in those moments? You cannot go to yourself. You cannot go to others. We are to fix our eyes on the great I am who says, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Let's pray to our God. Lord, we come before you seeking to see you, to know you, and to rejoice in you. There are men and women in this room right now who are weighing up vision, excited about what is possible and yet nervous about the challenge that might come. And then there are others in this room who are in the midst of that opposition right now. No matter where we are at, no matter what season we are in, we ask, Lord God, that you'd gift us with a vision of who you truly are. May you strengthen us. May you give us confidence that we may follow Jesus, that we may lead after him, that we may lead like him, and we may lead others to him. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name, and all of God's people said, Amen.